Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be K.J. Drake. Uh, Dr. Drake is now Academic Dean at the Indianapolis Theological Seminary, um, and K.J. and I did our PhDs together at St. Louis University. Um, he worked in modern theology and Reformation theology, as you will soon find out, um, and I, of course, worked in patristic Christianity, uh, but it was a pleasure to get to talk with a, uh, K.J. about his dissertation on uh, what is known as the extra-Calvinisticum, um, and this, uh, as he's going to show, is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, it was an idea that reformers thought about prior to Calvin, uh, but this is a bit of a deep dive into um, Reformation theology, especially Reformed theology, uh, which is a little bit new for us. Um, although I do come from a Reformed background, uh, I have not spent so much time studying the Reformers um, as much as I have, of course, the early Christian theologians. Uh, so it was a pleasure to get to talk with KJ um, about some of the way that uh, ideas and theology that I have learned and studied um, has been developed in the modern period. Um, so thank you to KJ. Um, hope you'll enjoy this interview. Uh, we will have a few more inter interviews coming coming up, one with Emily Dumbler-Winkler, um, and I'm still fixing the audio to a interview that I did with Zach Hicks on uh, Reformation worship. So we're going to do a little bit more modern stuff. The next three or four will be more modern theology, Reformation theology, um, and uh, and we're also trying to get some uh, episodes together with um, Tom and Trevor, uh, so I'll be looking out for that. Uh, please do rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, let us know uh, what you think. It's been great to get some uh, emails from, uh, I got an email from a student who's at Biola University, who's getting ready to start their uh, master's in classical theology. Uh, great to hear from him. Um, and so just uh, thank, thanks again for all of your input. It really does help us uh, know who's listening and why you're enjoying the show. So thank you very much. Without further ado, here's my conversation with KJ Drake. All right. Uh, so this week on A History of Christian Theology, or, well, I say this week. I don't know. I do these biweekly, whatever. Today I'm talking with uh, K.J. Drake, um, who has written The Flesh of the Word, The Extra Calvinisticum from Zwingli to Early Orthodoxy uh, with um, Oxford University Press. Um, and K.J. was uh, at Redeemer College in Canada, but has now uh, taken a new position at – is it the – I don't remember even the name of the se seminary, but you're in Indianapolis. Yep, Indianapolis. Theological Seminary. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. And uh, before we recorded, we were talking about how excited KJ was to move back into doing uh, historical and systematic theology, uh, which fits very well uh, with this book, right? So this is uh, his uh, work. It's it's a work that comes out of your dissertation. Um, and um, yeah, so it's it's a very uh, rich study um, with, with uh, a lot of very detailed uh, analysis and research, uh, but I wanted to begin just with a sort of a, a broad question. So you hear the phrase extra Calvinisticum, um, and you know a lot of this is going to be pretty, uh, you know, sort of scholastic <laughs> um, and systematic heavy, but you you put this question at the very end of the book. You say the extra Calvinisticum can stem from the simplest of questions: Where is Christ's body? now um so uh can you can you give us a little bit of a uh of a you know a synopsis of the book how does the book seek to answer that question and why is this uh it, and it also relates to the question of why is this pertinent uh to sort of 21st century theology great uh thanks chad happy to be with you 
Um, so that question of where is Christ's body now really does drive this discussion in the Reformation, but also beyond. So the term extra Calvinisticum can seem very scholastic, very obscure, um, but what it's really getting at is how do we understand Jesus as both fully God and fully man with reference to space and location? Uh -huh. So how can the omnipresent God take on a spatially located human flesh? Uh -huh. And how does that play out, not just in the incarnation itself, but throughout his entire ministry, through his death, resurrection, and especially the ascension? Uh -huh. So when we think about the extra Calvinisticum as it came about in the Reformation, it was this question of what happens with Christ's body when he ascends into heaven? Uh -huh. Does it remain a spatially located body in some sense while he remains divinely omnipresent? Mm -hmm. That's where we get the idea of extra Calvinisticum. The, um, the original term is from Lutheran polemics, which means that, uh, crudely translated, that Calvinist beyond idea. So extra <laughs> here means beyond. And so what it's really saying is that Christ is fully within his human nature, but simultaneously is beyond it from mm -hmm. the moment of incarnation, but also perpetually mm -hmm. that Christ does not give up his divine prerogatives as he becomes incarnate, but adds to himself a new nature mm -hmm. with new qualities such as spatial finitude. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the extra Calvinisticum, it is really a question of how do we conceive of Christ's presence to us? And yet his absence, because mm -hmm. there is a sense where Christ says simultaneously, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them also. But at the same time, I will not always be with you. I go away. Mm -hmm. So how do we reckon with the presence and absence of Christ in this time between his first and second coming? Yeah. And the extra Calvinisticum, which that term denotes the Reformation debate, which I discuss in my book but really transcends that across church history of understanding the exalted ministry of Christ and even the creed, you know, he ascended into heaven. Yeah. And so the extra Calvinisticum is us reflecting on the ascension and the two natures of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, we can think of Chalcedonian debates, but really just it. I think the book is uh, as I was going through it, it just really forces you to say what it, it, the, the sort of the perennial question uh, that the Christian must ask. What does it mean for the divine to also mm -hmm. be human um, in mm -hmm. the person of Christ? How mm -hmm. is that even possible? Um, and I, I just think uh, as you were saying all that, I. Uh, I have taught a lot of Sunday school classes, and usually I get brought in to teach early church history and early mm -hmm. Christian history, which, of course, makes sense, and I enjoy mm -hmm. it. Um, but when I try to frame uh, for, like, classes, you know, what is at stake in Chalcedon? What do we mean in mm -hmm. Christology? Um, I realize that I have to begin with uh, what does it mean to be human, um, mm -hmm. and what does it mean to be divine – Except for I also then run into the problem of how do we use those terms in the 21st century, uh, which is not the same thing as how those terms are used in the 4th century, the 3rd century, something like that. And mm -hmm. in this case, uh, but, you know, uh, which makes me wonder, I guess I could let you respond to that generally. But also, do we think that it, by the, the time that uh, this term comes up in the Reformation, 
you know, essentially where there's not actually as much discontinuity uh, between the third and fourth centuries and the 15th centuries as there may be in the last several hundred. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. And th- that question that you're giving, how do we reckon with a true humanity and true divinity is at stake? Now, all the disputants in this debate, whether it's Luther's Wingley, Calvin, etc., um, do agree on do agree on God, right? He is omnipresent, yeah. he is eternal, he is unchanging. And that is probably the thing that has taken the biggest hit in modern theology, yeah. as so-called classical theism has been challenged from many fronts theologically and philosophically. Um, I, I still think it is a, a very tenable and viable position. <laughs> but the question that really kind of emerged between Luther and Zwingli was, what do we mean by true humanity? Yeah. Are we, and that debate actually has a long tradition in the reform, or sorry, in the Christian kind of debates. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for us to be human and remain human? Uh Is there an elevation of human nature with the incarnation and salvation to something that is beyond what we think of humanity today? And so you could see this in any discussions of theosis or uh, deification. Like, what does that mean? So for Luther, we see a sense of Christ's humanity partakes uniquely of divine attributes, specifically omnipresence. Uh And others like Zwingli will argue that can't be the case because to be human is to be spatially finite, Mm -hmm. is to be spatially limited. And so to talk about an infinite humanity is to cease talking about humanity, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is kind of balled up in that question of, you know, you could even say, although they don't talk about these terms, grace and nature. Uh Does grace transcend nature and take us to something new? Or does grace perfect nature in its own self or restore nature in that way? And um, because Luther says so much, you can kind of read him almost however (laughs) you want on that question. (laughs) Well, that just makes me – okay, so – uh, I, uh, you know, so I was trained uh, by a uh, by an Augustinian scholar who specialized in deification mm-hmm. in Augustine. Uh, mm-hmm. So, it is part of this uh, extra Calvinisticum? Do you take it to mean that uh, that the the Reformation use of it resists theosis uh, because mm-hmm. theosis is too much uh, sort of collapse? Uh, I don't know, collapsing the creator creation distinction, uh, or mm-hmm. at least uh, sort of overwhelming the the categories or something. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really tricky question. Um, while I was at SLU, uh, I did an entire seminar on theosis and deification across the tradition. However, I my my read on it totally depends on what you mean by the term. Um, there 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 might be dozens of definitions of what we mean by theosis or deification or theopoiesis, right? Yeah. Um, I don't find the term particularly helpful because okay. I do think it like it's one of those terms you're like, well. To be made divine. Well, we don't actually mean to be made divine, but to per- participate in a relation with the divine. It's like, okay, but why use the term that says to be made divine? Like yeah. that might not be the best term. But um, the idea of deification, if by that we mean a union with Christ that is divine in the sense of he is the divine one and we are brought to the fullness of what it means to be humanity, which is to be the image of God, uh-huh. right? Um, then I do think you could talk about a reformed uh, theosis, and there are yeah. many who do, but it's always going to be Christologically uh, mediated. 
Yeah. And I do think from McConey's work, that's what Augustine ultimately argues. Like for Augustine, there there is no blending of the creator-creature distinction in theosis. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that that always maintains a sharp division between the creator and the creature. And as long as a doctrine of deification or theosis attends to that very carefully and attends to the goodness of creation, uh-huh. right? Um, our finitude is not a problem. Yeah. It's, you know, part of the good of being a creature is being finite, being limited. Now, those things can, our qualities might be elevated, but they're never elevated to something that, that makes us no longer human. Just uh-huh. like the, the resurrected Christ is still a human being but glorified. So right. I think there's room, but I would just push a, are we getting anything out of that term that something like glorification and union with Christ could mm-hmm. not get us? Yeah. Um, and th- there has been a real resurgence in thoughts on deification and theosis in the 20th century. I think some of it's very good, but it wasn't really the main way that the Western theologians talked right. about this, even though I think they had the concepts that people like about those terms. Um, without necessarily needing that as a prime category for human salvation. Yeah. Um, I do think when you get into the essence energies distinctions of the East and how it's worked (laughs) out there, I am less interested in that. Um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in any way, but uh, I do think that's probably a different doctrine of theosis than you see in the West. Yeah. And we've had Mike Hobbits on the podcast to talk about theosis in, uh, uh, um, I was going to say Tolkien, um, uh, now I can't. Yeah. Uh, Torrance. Uh, oh, Torrance. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Habits uh, does uh, or Habits. I always get it wrong. Um, it, yeah, he does it in Torrance. But anyway, mm-hmm. it, it was a doctrine that I was kind of uh, had had been interested in. I think I yeah I have. I think all of that makes a, a lot of sense, and you're right. It is a kind of minority report, as it were, um, even in in Aquinas and and in Augustine. Uh, but it just uh, struck me as as interesting. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, but it, it does relate to that question, which is one of the central ones, as you mentioned, how does the divine and the human relate? Yeah. And how do we, and it is that question of the humanity and divinity of Christ, grace and nature, um, the creator and creature. Like these are all distinctions that have relations that we can never, we can never absolutize the distinction, right? Like yeah. even though the creator creature distinction is, you know, is complete in some way, it's not so complete that God does not interact with his creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is this tension where the tradition has always refused to make these distinctions too simple, yeah. but also refuses to annihilate the distinctions entirely. Yeah. And a lot of that debate goes into how do we navigate these properly um, yeah. in, in light of the tradition and the scriptural witness. Yeah. It strikes me just as we're talking to the sort of famous, uh, the locus classicus for all of this would be uh, Athanasius. Uh, God became man so that man might become God. Um, mm-hmm. And and so that's sort of the, the most literal way to phrase that. Uh, but it, it, it strikes me maybe that the the phrase that that we most easily pass over is become, um, and mm-hmm. and so the the becomingness um, is actually really the part that's the the hard part. Um, mm-hmm. That is uh, that God always was is. So we have that sort of 
uh, is be- becoming distinction, which is classic in uh, uh, Greek philosophy. Uh, you know, what God is the thing that is, and we are the thing that becomes um, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as humans. And so, really, the essential distinction there: God is what is, we are what become. Um, and and so, becoming God already assumes, in some sense, that we could never be the same God in the same way mm-hmm. uh, that God is God. We have yeah. to become it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we which case uh, it presumes a sort of it is actually a distinction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we I, mm-hmm. I feel like oftentimes I I see people say, well, we, we become like God, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can add that qualifier. Uh, but in some sense, if you un- if you understand what it means to become, that's already saying mm-hmm. it's not the same thing. Yeah. And I do think that uh, Athanasius is also working much more with the concept of divine Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, almost analogy there. Now he yeah. doesn't have that yet, but um, he's very careful to maintain the creator-creature distinction throughout right. his work. Right, that's the entire debate with Athanasius. Like Christ is divine because he does divine things that only God can do, um, and he does actually maintain the extra Calvinistica. Probably mm-hmm. some of the earliest expressions of it are in Athanasius. So mm-hmm. he says, "I actually have this pulled up." Oh, nice. Athanasius says. For he was not, as might be imagined, circumscribed in the body, Mm. nor while present in the body was he absent elsewhere, nor while he moved in the body was the universe left void of his working and providence. But thing most marvelous, word as he was, so far from being contained by anything, he rather contained all things himself. Mm. So even in Athanasius, we see this idea of the, the coming of Christ in the incarnation was not an abandonment of his divinity and divine prerogatives in providence and creation, but was taking to himself a new mode in the human nature of limitation. So Mm -hmm. he was only, um, he was in the body, obviously fully, but he was also simultaneously beyond it. So I think even as we think of Athanasian, Athanasius and um, deification, the creator creature distinction and even the extra Calvinisticum is maintained. Well, and and so uh, one of the things that I was thinking about uh, asking you as I was reading the book is mm-hmm. even this the use of this term Calvinisticum. So we've just said the Calvinisticum uh, is found in Athanasius, mm-hmm. um, and so is there a, another phrase that you are uh, you know thinking of that that might be more useful than Calvinisticum? I mean, you have to use it for the book. Um, I get that because that's the way that it works out in the Reformation debates. Uh, but as you say, this is a this is a doctrine. This is a, a teaching that is exi- that has preexisted the Reformation debates. So uh, can you say something about the, the use of that phrase? And maybe a, is there a more is there a better term, another term? Yeah. So the, the term extra Calvinisticum itself uh, rises in the 1620s in an actual intra-Lutheran debate between the faculties of Tübingen and Gießen mm. over um, disputes within how the Lutherans work this out. But other scholars, uh, so the Reformed don't ever take this term up for their own doctrine until the 20th century, mm. because you kind of need a term to discuss the underlying conceptual framework. Yeah. Um, one of the first scholars on this was a guy named David Willis, and he actually proposed the term extra-Catholicicum or extra-patristicum, Okay. Um, other scholars who have pointed to Peter Martyr Vermigli, who I treat in the third chapter mm-hmm. of the book, have said we should call it the extra Vermiglianum. Mm. M- my position would be like, actually, this is labeling it the wrong way. Mm. Um, it's not a unique belief of any specific group, whether that's Calvin or Vermigli or um, Zwingli or 
um, even the patristics. In, in many ways, I think we should shift the term to a much more Christologically focused label. And I would prefer the term the extra carnum, so mm-hmm. beyond the flesh. Mm-hmm. So that way we're saying this is actually a standard doctrine, especially of Chalcedonian Christology. And if we want to reflect on Christ's relationship in the single person between the two natures, both in the flesh and beyond the flesh, that might be a better way to discuss this. So we're not fighting about who owns this. Did Calvin come up with it, which he certainly didn't. Um, and that, that way I think it could actually find a place of more proper reflection. Cause there is a thing in theology. If you don't have a kind of place for it in the systematic discussion, mm-hmm. it kind of falls away. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so having a term of like, Oh, we're going to discuss the extra carnum mm-hmm. gives you a set of questions and yeah. a way to trace through the tradition on this point. Yeah. While if you say the extra Calvinisticum, you don't look before Calvin. Yeah. And one of the one of the things my book was trying to show is that Calvin, even in the Reformation, is not the first one to make this point mm. that Zwingli is actually the originator of bringing this position into the debates of the Reformation, especially over the Lord's Supper. Mm. And so Zwingli, even early on in 1525, will say, we need to understand the Lord's Supper in light of the ascension of Jesus uh-huh. and the true huma- humanity that's ascended. And so that is one of the contributions of my book, trying to show that Zwingli is actually the originator of this in the debates of the Reformation, but not the concept itself for which he draws on Augustine specifically um, and other uh, others of the fathers. Yeah. Well, and just uh, as we're as we're making these kind of conversations, we're drawing in Athanasius, we're drawing in Augustine, you're, you know, Zwingli, Luther. Um, it, it just uh, sort of strikes me that... Uh, you know, uh, one question we people often, uh, or that I've thought about, I guess I should say, uh, I was trained in a Catholic uh, institution for my PhD. Um, I have a master's degree from Princeton Seminary, which is whatever that is. Um, and uh, but we have this, uh, you know, it, it it it's it's interesting how important the whole tradition is here, right? So this is p- part of what your book shows. Well, I guess your book is very focused on on this this particular area area, but your broader work, um, it seems, fits very well with this idea that the the Reformation is not just a co- not just a total break, right? Not just like a whole new moment in history. Mm-hmm. No, this is a this is an ongoing conversation, um, trying to you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, we can use retrieval. There's probably problems with that, but you know, could you say something about what it means to reason theologically as mm. a Christian? Uh, that that this is just a natural way uh, to do theology. Yeah, and that's very much what's going on in these debates um, in the Reformation. They are not attempting to do anything new. Um, that's why they consider themselves reforming, right? Mm. Both Luther and Zwingli are trying to return to what they consider a pure expression of the Christian faith in dialogue with the, um, with the fathers, but also mm. what they'll generally call Calvin calls them the better scholastics. <laughs> and so, um, there are arguments to be made that most of what's being, um, pushed against is certain forms of late medieval scholasticism specifically in some of these debates. And also then what was perceived as clerical abuse or kind of the rise of, Uh, new movements. But when they're talking theologically, especially in the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ, um, it's the Catholic doctrine. It's the, it's the broad Orthodox doctrine of the creeds. Chalcedon comes up repeatedly in this. It's 
often are we being true to the Chalcedonian deposit of faith? Now, it doesn't have an independent authority as if the issue is you're disagreeing with Chalcedon, but mm-hmm. it does have the issue of they all agreed that it was a right rendering mm-hmm. of the scriptural account. And so when you see these debates, they'll move from quoting the fathers to exegeting scripture to having philosophical reasoning come in about what is a plausible or um, accurate understanding of you know, human embodiment. And also, why does this matter to the activities of the church and piety and ritual practice? And they are not trying to innovate, right? right. Um, innovation is always something that they were trying to say, no, 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 I'm not innovating. That's, that's a bad thing in both the medieval and the Reformation because, not because they were afraid of what's new, but their thought was, if I'm saying it for the first time, uh, the odds of it being correct are probably pretty small. <laughs> there were more radical aspects of the Reformation that were innovative, yeah. um, such as the, the rationalists who become the Socinians and parts of the Anabaptist movement were really trying to wipe the slate clean Entirely. and go back behind the entire tradition and start from a kind of uh, almost a restorationist of the New Testament church as they understood it. But that was not the mission of Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or any of these people. Um, They were trying to persuade the entire church that their way was truer with the Bible and in the best parts of tradition, right? They they wouldn't make the case that like, oh, yeah, we're just, everyone agreed with us. They they knew better. But they would generally make arguments that this is the better strand of the tradition. And we return to scripture to judge that tradition. Yeah. So, for instance, Calvin cites uh, Christosom all the time on yeah. justification, even though they disagree quite a bit on questions of predestination and foreknowledge, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, he'll cite Augustine all the time on numerous things, even though he'll disagree with uh, Augustine on certain aspects of the nature of the church. And you see the same thing in Zwingli. Um, yeah. Zwingli is often, I think, overlooked. And that was part of the, the burden of my first chapters was to show that um, he's often kind of seen as the second fiddle to Luther mm-hmm. in the broader Reformation, and then the second fiddle to Calvin if we're talking about the Reformed tradition. And those are fair in many ways, but he was a quite substantial scholar in his own right, uh, trained in the humanistic methods of the period, but also being well-trained in the Via Antiqua. Um, he had degrees from the University of uh, Vienna and from Basel, and so was very familiar with um the kind of cutting edge of scholarship of his day. And so when he is trying to make his case, he's appealing to the fathers, he's appealing to the creeds, he's appealing to uh, new humanistic methods of expositing scripture in its full ancient context. Um, And so this is a deeply traditioned movement Mm -hmm. coming out of the Reformation. It it is never coming uh, tabula rasa. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very helpful. Um, and so uh, to attend a little bit to this conversation between uh, Luther and Zwingli, sort of the early part here, uh, we uh, one of the things that sort of struck me as as I was reading through this was the uh, the debates over this is my body, right? So Christ says this is my body. And so a big a big part of the extra Calvinisticum, the extra Carnum, um, is how uh, Christ, where is Christ's body um, now? Uh, with respect to how one celebrates communion or the Eucharist or the Last Supper. Um, And so Zwingli and Luther both uh, uh, have a way of interpreting this phrase, this is my body. Uh, Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit uh, about why this phrase um, is so important for both of them? And maybe it shows a little bit of their their different ways of reasoning uh, um, 
theologically about Christ's body? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. So the debate over the Eucharist is kind of the location where this really takes off. Um, I tried to show that there's kind of two debates that actually emerge. There's the debate over the Eucharist, and out of that spawns this Christological debate that underlies it. So um, they can be distinguished, even though they're deeply connected. Mm -hmm. And the reason this was coming up is as we move into the 16th century, there is a lot of turmoil over the na nature of the Eucharist, especially after the Hussite revolts and the question of communion in two kinds, whether... Uh, the lady is given the bread and the wine or merely the bread. Mm. And so there's a big issue with this. And is the sacrament then also a means of justification? Mm -hmm. So when we look at this question of the supper, it does come from the motivating factors of the Reformation. For Luther, that is the question of how is one justified before God? Um, and for Zwingli, while he cares about justification, his real question is, how do we preserve the true and right worship of God? Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that Zwingli cares about in the supper are the question of the adoration of the host, which mm -hmm. he completely rejects as idolatrous. So when they come to this uh, question of how do we interpret this as my body, they have different priorities and different yeah. hermeneutical methods. Luther is really focusing on the Eucharist as the presence of Christ to the believer that secures and maintains the grace of redemption. So you're not justified by the supper, but it is an ongoing communion with Christ who justifies, connected mm -hmm. to the idea of foreign righteousness, uh, connected to the idea of grace. This is all playing in for this. Mm -hmm. And for Luther, it's also combined with a hermeneutic uh, I would call it a hermeneutic of obedience. So he says in the debate at Marburg in 1529, if the Lord God commanded me to eat dung, I would do so. <laughs> and so for him, this comes with a radical commitment to the scriptures as divine word and command to be obeyed. Uh -huh. And so when he gets to this is my body, he takes a very um, firm stance that is means is means substantial in some way. Um, and so one needs to be obedient to the word of God in that. And I do think in this, you can see a bit of Luther's nominalist training. So there is debate on how nominalist Luther was, and it's a whole complicated thing. But um, <laughs> my reading on some of these issues is his view of reason, his view of metaphysics does gravitate, at least in his rhetorical moments, to the nominalist tradition that would kind of set faith over reason and that would argue for kind of the obedience of the word and the power of God in doing these things. So continually at Marburg, he tells, he tells Zwingli, stop bringing in mathematics. Now, what does he mean by that? Zwingli's trying to argue about, well, bodies have qualities, and we can talk about whether these qualities are active or not. And Luther says, stop bringing in geometry. Do you believe Jesus or not? Uh -huh. That's what's at stake here. Yeah. Um, and so for Luther, it is this act of obedience to Christ to participate in the sacrament and have true communion with Christ, whatever that means for him. For him, it ultimately ends up being that the humanity of Christ takes on the divine property of omnipresence and therefore is able to be um, bodily present in the elements. Um, and so that's his main contention. And for him, what's at stake is the very presence of Christ to the believer. Yeah. Zwingli, on the other hand, um, he's moving in a much more humanistic trajectory than Luther, being trained and... Uh, corresponding with Erasmus. He cares very deeply about the Greek language and very careful exegesis. And so when he originally goes after the doctrine of transubstantiation, it's for a couple re reasons. 
he finds it to be contradictory because he thinks that Christ's body ascended to heaven Mm -hmm. and is a human body and that the substance cannot be multiplied. And so this offends his sense that scripture is reasonable and Mm -hmm. true. And therefore he asks the question, okay, this is my body might mean substance, but it might not mean that. Let's do some exegesis and use the analogy of scripture. Christ also says, this is I am the vine, I am the branches, right? Right. I am the door. And so Zwingli offers this discussion of, well, should we take this as a trope? And by that means he he means metaphorical in some sense, right? Um, Or should we take this as a literal is statement? And he tries to show that actually, if we take it substantively, we run into contradictions about the nature of Christ's body. Um, He also argues that um, to say it's a miracle misses the point because miracles are always uh, sensible, right? Mm -hmm. Miracles are something God does in the natural world that we can perceive and see. But to claim that transubstantiation is a miracle, it has no sensible factor to it, right? Mm. The accidents remain the same. So the miracle is unsensed. And from that, he draws a lot on the um, understanding of symbol and signs from Augustine, actually. And so with this, Zwingli is saying, we need to understand this as this symbolizes my body. Mm -hmm. And what that means is this is an act of commemoration and even of communion with Christ, but not via a corporeal presence in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Now, it's kind of a side discussion to say, what is Zwingli's actual view? Um, Often it's said that he's a pure memorialist. I I do not think that's accurate. Um, His view does develop. Most of his early thought is against Luther and the Catholic view of transubstantiation, and very little is his own position. Mm -hmm. But by his later work in 1531... Um, he will argue for a sacramental presence mm. of Christ. Um, it's not fully worked out, but I do think he ends up towards the end of his life gravitating, gravitating much more to what Calvin will hold, which is a presence via the spirit in the act of communing as opposed to a corporeal presence in the elements in any way. Yeah. Yeah, that was one thing. I mean, I know Zwingli very little. I know the name. Uh, I know, you know, maybe have read an excerpt or something. Uh, but it was interesting to see as I was following along in your argument, how much he's developing um, in what he thinks. And, it, you know, I guess just given the kind of um, you know, it feels like there's a, a flowering in a hundred different directions uh, during this period, but it's got to be kind of an interesting thing where you're suddenly kind you know, all these people are, uh, the, the various reformers feel free uh, to start saying what they really think mm-hmm. um, in, in this way. So of course there's going to be a kind of development and a kind of like a splintering off in a hundred different directions. So, you know, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone felt like they had to toe the line for a thousand years, mm. but uh, but there pro- there is a kind of like, well, I have to figure out how to bring what I think in line uh, with the sentences or with you know whatever uh, whatever I'm doing. Um, and so I guess it would make perfect sense, uh, I mm-hmm. guess is what I'm trying to say that Zwingli would have a little bit of like, oh, wait a minute, I hadn't worked that part out yet. Um, I just knew that this part didn't seem right. Mm-hmm. Well, and we have to remember that they're also operating deeply in history. And sometimes, like, I point this out in my book for one of Zwingli's things, like, he wrote one of these things in three months <laughs> while he was being a full-time pastor, yeah. while he was, you know, uh, he was deeply involved in the politics of Zurich. And, like, it wasn't as if he had the slow time to figure this out, yeah. right? Um, and... 
there were pressing needs, there were polemical needs. And so we have to take that into account. I do think Zwingli has been misserved by not looking at his mature thought, which Mm. comes in the 1530s, right before his death. Um, But it's similar for Luther. There's tons of development going on. Um, But he had the luxury of a much longer life. Um, Zwingli's entire reforming career is only eight years Mm. in which he produces everything that he's written. And even in that eight years, you do see progressive developments in how he understands things as he tries to think through them more fully um, and respond to criticisms and respond to critics and uh, address the needs of the day. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, we should have that proper historical consciousness when we think about these figures. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. It also uh, just listening to you talk about it, uh, it, it, you know, there's the other thing that sort of emerges from this which is sort of a a lutheran reflex um in terms of how to how does one again do theology i feel like i've keep i'm using that phrase a lot in our conversation Uh um but you know the this sort of lutheran um this is what he says uh this is what it you know you have to uh don't reason about it don't bring in all these other things just believe it um and and it was funny because as you said it i was like i actually thought ah kierkegaard um and um and there was like that was what pinged off in my brain um Mm -hmm. and you know he comes from a luther danish lutheran context or even like i've been reading a lot of robert jensen we just interviewed paul hinlicky um who has some kind of similar lutheran reflexes Mm -hmm. like jensen does and I mean, you know, whatever version of Lutheranism they are, uh, they're still you can it's you, I feel like I can see a family resemblance mm-hmm. um, in some of the ways that that they they have developed an instinct um, for theology. And I think that's what made reading. I mean, I was just reading a couple books from Hinlicky, um in preparation for that interview. And I had read a little bit from Jensen as well. But seeing they're similar, they're still very Lutheran, um, mm-hmm. even if they're not uh, LCM, you know, the more conservative Lutheran. Uh, mm-hmm. There's still that kind of Lutheran impulse. Yeah, there and there does. I wouldn't want to push it too far. And I know that there are um, pretty advanced scholarships on exactly how Luther is using reason. And it's yeah. not kind of just the whore of the whore of Satan, as yeah. he said. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think both would agree that the Lutheran and the Reformed develop quite this distinct views of the place of reason in theology yeah neither is rationalist like that's sometimes the critique that lutherans are irrationalists and the reformer yeah. rationalists that's not that's not accurate but there are subtle distinctions that do really emerge and you see it as early as marburg the mm. kind of way that reason functions along with faith um, seems a little more harmonious in the reformed tradition and a little more uh dialectic in the Lutheran tradition. And that, that emerges very early on. I I was actually converted in the Lutheran church. So I was Lutheran until I was um, from my, my conversion until I was about 21. And so like I was trained in the Lutheran school to a small extent. Right. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I do think there is that divergence that continues and then is codified in the Protestant scholastics. Mm. Those debates that kind of are the trajectories that are set in the 16th century by Luther and his followers, and then Zwingli, Calvin, Bullinger, and the Reformed, then kind of come into how you discuss these things in the scholastic period. Um, Even to the extent, I note this in my conclusion, that because of their different views of Christ's body, they actually developed different concepts of space and physics Mm. in the early universities because Mm -hmm. of their different kind of conceptions of what is required for something to be a body. 
Mm. Must a body be limited, says the reformed, therefore physics looks one way. Can a body be in some ways still unlimited? Uh-huh. Now, that, that's a short mo- moment before modern physics comes in. But yeah, these things did have implications well beyond um, just these debates over the supper. Yeah. Well, and so we're, you know, we're still thinking about uh, theology a little bit. And, you know, as soon as as soon as Wingley makes the move to say, well, he doesn't mean literally this is my body. Uh, mm-hmm. It just it had me thinking of like, what what does it mean to interpret scripture, um, which is another kind of, um, I guess you could say an impulse or an instinct that's being developed uh, by Zwingli here as he, and then p- sort of pushing more in that reformed uh, trajectory of this kind of, uh, you know, is it a a historical grammatical what is the original intent of the author and i it, you know, it seems to me that that's not it, well maybe that is what he's doing I, you know i guess there, that's a question um but is the is that search for original authorial intent of the only way uh to to reason well um i you know we tim keller just passed away um and i was listening to some lectures that he gave on preaching because someone had mentioned to me that they were really good and uh, he talks about like, the, you know, oh, you know, it's, it's so critical when doing expository preaching to understand the authorial intent. Um, and then he moves on to say, but it's also important to think of the canonical, um, uh, you know, scope. Um, and so there's – and but my first thought was – I don't know that the authorial intent did Matthew when he records Jesus saying, this is my mm-hmm. body. Did he think canonically? Well, he couldn't have. Um, and so authorial, <laughs> authorial intent uh, to me seems like at times, you know, I, I think it has its place. It's, uh, but it's, it's also limited by other concerns like maybe canonical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that's a good question. And it goes to the, the history of kind of interpretation and method. So when Zwingli is saying literal here, he's talking about the literal reading of the text according to the uh, traditional fourfold discussion, uh-huh. right? So according to the letter, or he would contrast that with according to the meaning, mm. right? W- one of the difficulties as we think through this is hermeneutics just took on a completely dis- different shape through the 19th and into the 20th century, right? And so authorial intent is kind of a, an awkward way to say something sometimes, because it sounds as if what you need to get at is the reconstruction of the ideas in the mind of the writer when they wrote. Uh-huh. Um, but, th- but that's inaccessible. And um, that's, that's not really what one wants. Like that was kind of all the rage in the early 20th century. Uh, if you think of Collingwood on history, right? History yeah. is getting in the minds of the people in the past and having the same thoughts. And you're like, well, that's not really exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Um, however, what it's trying to guard against is a kind of, especially after the 80s and others, is a reader response form mm. and where what doesn't matter, what's most important is what does the text elicit in me as opposed mm. to what it was intended to. Right. And so what I think authorial intent is really getting at is allowing the text qua text to speak to us in its fullness and its historicity before we bring in other things or to to stop and make sure we're not importing later discussions our own desires um and then it's often sometimes it just stops there historical grammatical period um i don't think you can do that um, because then you're not reading scripture as holy scripture as the word of god in any real meaningful way um it's it's a text that has divine sanction however one wants to think about that the, the idea that it is not just the author who is human, although that needs to be taken account of, 
and certain former ways of interpreting might have discounted the kind of con concrete human aspects of the text and too quickly gone to theological interpretations. But a mode that just says we need authorial intent of the human is missing out on the authorial intent of the divine. Mm -hmm. um, and so what you see going on in the Reformation is this kind of humanistic and medievally informed view. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get away from what they saw as excesses of the method of analogy mm. that they thought just was untethered from the words themselves. Yeah. And so they're adopting, I wouldn't say it's an authorial intent or even a historical grammatical approach, although they did, uh, the learning of the Greek and Hebrew was a big element to all of them. What, what they're trying to get at is how do we see this as the word of God to the world and being tied to what the text in its original languages said. That's mm -hmm. why there's this ad fontes. They are trying yeah. to um, especially get away from the glossing tradition of the Middle Ages, right? And that's what you can see it in two different ways. You can see it in a more mystical way, the kind of direct encounter with divine words through human words. Yeah. And that's more Luther's way. Uh -huh. um, or you can see it much more as the text in its complex meaning and literary structure reveals to us true words from God that we see in context of the whole scripture. And mm -hmm. so what uh, Zwingli is really doing is scripture interpreting scripture. Mm -hmm. He's saying, we come to this text. Yeah. yeah. What does it mean? It's not about what Matthew meant when he wrote it. Uh, it is about what Jesus meant and means, though, right? Yeah. Because the idea is, as Jesus speaks this, he's speaking as the one who inspires the entirety of the canonical witness. And so um, Zwingli does care about how does this connect to the Passover, for instance? Mm -hmm. How is this couched within the upper room discourse? How is this couched within the ascension? And so it's uh, the pre-modern exegesis is, I think, much more holistic, but it was more holistic and naive. And I don't mm -hmm. mean that in a negative sense, right? But it's just mm -hmm. kind of pre-critical. Yeah. And... By doing that, they were easy. It was easy to slip between textual analysis, theological interpretation, um, connecting to different scenes in Scripture, and bringing them together in a holistic theological presentation. What, what we would call now kind of theological interpretation, um, without the self consciousness of it, because um, <laughs> there, you know, theological interpretation is good, but everyone feels a little uncomfortable and they're not sure if it's true. Uh, yeah. Right? Are we allowed to do this? They didn't worry about that. Um, yeah. They, and I think another important thing is they interpreted to persuade what God was speaking, hmm. and I do think that's a big difference in their method. This was not an academic exercise for peer-reviewed journals, so other <laughs> scholars might think that you're more partially right on one thing. Um, this had a clear practical purpose in transforming the church to be faithful to God. Mm -hmm. And if they weren't concerned with that, they weren't doing it. Yeah. And so they actually thought this mattered beyond tenure and a line on your CV. <laughs> uh, they thought this is our call from God. And that's why they took it so seriously. That's why things were at stake here that yeah. we often miss. Like yeah. people can sometimes be like, why do they care so much about this phrase? It's like, well, for them... Um, this was the very question of how is Jesus Christ present to believers today and the spiritual health of people utterly de is demanded here. Yeah. Same with, you know, the classic, the difference between homoousios and uh, homoousios is an umlaut, right? And you're yeah. like, well, 
in one sense, but in another sense, not at all, right? Right. And so th this is a deeply theological embedded way of interpreting scripture and making theological arguments that is also tied into the tradition. They're bringing in the fathers all the time. They're citing the scholastics when they like them, um, or they're <laughs> disputing them because they think that these debates matter for the church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, as you put it just there, which seems right to me, is Christ not what Christ said, but what Christ says. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, and getting that correct um, is a big part of this. Right. So as as God is, uh, speaks, um, not as God spoke. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I've encountered that a little bit with um, sort of speech act theory. And uh, this comes up. I mean, the Lutherans love this, too. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. very much. These are God's promises um, and mm -hmm. what God promises to you you mm -hmm. um and, and and you know but i think it also you know it fits with augustine um he has a directness uh to his address god promises to you uh these same things um these are god's mm -hmm. promises you know and, and so it's not just uh it's not just god promised or god promised to them um mm -hmm. and you put it taking that third person kind of you know moving out of the arena of direct address uh but moving it into the arena of like a, a past event um mm -hmm. and yeah yeah and maintaining at the same time that kind of attention to the literal sense and the historical is important but mm -hmm. if we get trapped in just that um we have in some ways rendered the text inert mm -hmm. but also we render it inert if we just care about what i experience from the text right, it, right. if it's only kind of that which is already in me that resonates right uh it only has the ability to confirm what's already there, right? Correct. As opposed to challenge it. So yeah. a much more, I think, theological approach, which remembers that God is the one speaking in the past and now, and there's a continuity via the ascended Christ to bring it back there. Uh, and they don't go into this, but there is a sense where the ascended ministry of Christ is still prophetic, mm. that there is a continuity with the incarnate word the ascended word, the inscripturated word, and the spirit of Christ who illuminates the word now. And mm -hmm. that kind of um, reading scripture within the divine economy is something that they would never have expressed, but is what they did, uh -huh. right? Um, there was, uh, so Webster always talks about, John Webster, that scripture must always be read in the face of God as he is one, uh, as we speak about God, he is someone in the room, mm -hmm. right? And that kind of sense of interpreting scripture quorum Deo was yeah. the heartbeat of the Reformation's attempt uh, to put forth what they thought was the best interpretation of scripture and therefore the best way to worship and honor God. Yeah. I like it. Um, as a kind of switch gears questions, I always sure. ask someone, uh, you know, what is one thing you, th you thought true, but now think is false, uh, and, uh, or, or vice versa. One thing you thought was false mm -hmm. and now you think is true. Uh, I, I say, you know, sometimes I, I like this as a question, like it could be related to the book. Uh, so like, what did you, you know, see something people don't always realize is that when you're doing research for a book like this, uh, you, you come across something and you're like, oh shoot, I had that all wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, but it can also be interesting just to hear a little bit from scholars, things in their lives, you know, ways in which, I mean, just to, to kind of go back to what we were talking about with um, 
hermeneutics there, uh, you know, if God really speaks, uh, then then we're bound to change our minds about some things, right? Mm-hmm. We're bound to recognize that we're not just confirming our priors, um, or we're not just, you know, it's not just this, you know, uh, confirming what I already felt. Um, and so that's that's the power of Scripture is to change um, in in some, in, at least in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, so you can take that however you like. One thing you once thought was true and now think is false, or vice versa. <laughs> and and if you if you if even if you know what caused that change, yeah. So um, the the research didn't do a lot of that for me, not because um, I thought I knew everything about it, but because going into it. Uh, all I knew was I thought this topic was interesting and <laughs> I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions of exactly how this played out historically. Um, and so I found out tons of stuff about that. That was not something I thought false uh, beforehand, but uh. that I just had no idea. However, uh, on this topic, like as I, um, I think I mentioned to you before, I was actually converted in the Lutheran church. And so um, I held to Luther's position on the Lord's supper um, throughout my, from my teen years into college. And I was a theology nerd as one would expect for someone who becomes a theologian. (laughs) And so, you know, I thoroughly defended um, Luther's doctrine of corporeal presence in the Eucharist, as I talked with friends who were more evangelical or reformed. Um, And my position did change on that in college. Mm. Um, Actually, while I was helping to distribute the sacraments in a Lutheran church, Mm. um, so uh, I'll tell the story briefly. And for yeah. any Lutheran leaders, I'm sorry. Sorry, this is probably not how it should have been, but <laughs> it, it did occur. So I attended a church that was a Lutheran chapel on campus. That was almost enti- it was entirely students with one pastor, and so they would have some of the students help distribute the elements after they were consecrated by the pastor. And one Sunday, I'm handing out the bread, and I run out, um, and I didn't know what to do. So I rushed into the back and I grabbed. I think of wafers, pulled them on the plate and went out and started <laughs> handing them back. And I realized after about the second or third one, wait a second, these are unconsecrated. Uh-huh. Am I currently distributing a Love. false sacrament or an invalid uh-huh. sacrament? And uh, I had this realization, I'm, you know, as I'm walking, I had, and I had been in the process of kind of looking into the reform tradition. And this was something that was actively being debated in me. And I did conclude, um, not at that moment, but as I reflected upon it, <laughs> that I believed that the presence of Christ was in the act, not uh-huh. in the elements. Uh-huh. And when I kind of reflected on that, I, I that was the last kind of movement from myself becoming uh, reformed as opposed to Lutheran in my own convictions. Um, and I know that there's probably good reasons that a Lutheran theologian can give me that I wasn't <laughs> doing anything wrong or... But that, that was my uh, kind of movement into the Reformed camp was actually deeply tied to these questions. Um, and I didn't actually pursue this topic, by the way, anything related to that. Like it yeah. was completely in the rearview mirror. But there was a kind of I could appreciate both sides of the debate uh-huh. uh, because I had had personal experience with this. The extra Calvinistic come didn't play into it at all. But uh, <laughs> that, I didn't learn about that till later. But. Well, but yeah, you know, there is some deep resonances, though. I mean, as, as it does play into it, that's uh, that's good. I like it. Um, 
Well, okay. So one, the the last thing that that this is just an kind of maybe it's an off the wall question, um, or, or maybe it's a more Lutheran way to ask this question. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I was as I was reading the book, you kept talking about where is Christ, um, and so is is Christ in the elements? Is you know in Christ's ascension? Where is his body? Um, and uh, Jensen has uh, he has a book called Theology and Outline, um, and it's basically a series of lectures he gave at Princeton University. Um, and one of the things that he asks in there is not the question is not where is Christ, but when is Christ? And and so there is this sort of other element that doesn't feature. I mean, Luther doesn't really bring it up as far as I remember in the book. Uh, but the other question of time, how does you know, so if mm-hmm. we're talking about the divine relationship to space, uh, well, if contemporary physics talk about space time, uh, well, there, there's another part of this question. Um, and uh, so I, I just I was curious if if you had sort of if every time you wrote time or space, did you ever think space time um, and then go, well, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I did try to avoid that. Um, <laughs> OK, all right. Yeah. So, uh, there there are some complicating questions to this. So first off, Jensen is coming from a 20th century mindset that wants to preserve preserve what he called the futuricity of God coming uh-huh. from Pannenberg, also Moltmann yeah. and in some ways, this has a process of God coming to be, or at least coming to be manifest fully through the process of history. Yeah. Um, as if there is a waiting for God to be for us, right. as we kind of are drawn forward into the eschaton and the full revelation. Uh, and that's played out differently in uh, Jensen, Pannenberg, and Moltmann. Yeah. Uh, for Moltmann, for instance, the, I do think he's saying that God actually comes to be through the process of time, and therefore uh-huh. God is not really... Um, fully himself until creation is re- renewed and restored. Um, I don't think that's what Jensen's, Jensen's saying. No, uh, yeah. But, I mean, sometimes <laughs> Jensen's hard to understand. Yeah. But um, that's not really how they thought about time. Like, I, I think we we have gotten actually extremely um, used to thinking of time as a medium. Mm-hmm. So that concept of space-time as, like, the medium through which we move. Uh-huh. Uh, has become quite normal to us as we move into modern physics. Um, But for the ancients, that's not really what time was. Um, You know, Augustine has the famous quote, I can define time until you ask me to (laughs) define it. Um, But for the early moderns, time, especially because they were very influenced by uh, Aristotle, was actually just a way of noting change. Mm -hmm. Time was not so much a thing yeah. but was our experience of change. It's not purely subjective, but where there was no change, there was no time mm-hmm. in many ways for the Aristotelian concept. Um, there is kind of a, a platonic concept of time as the reflection of the eternal, mm-hmm. um, but how that played in beyond kind of the metaphorical is a little unclear. So when they think of Christ, they think of him as one person. Obviously, that always needs to be maintained. The one person has two yeah. natures. Mm-hmm. According to his divine nature, he is eternal. And that mm-hmm. means utterly transcendent of time. Mm-hmm. Um, just as omnipresence does not mean present like in parts, but utterly transcendent of all space. Mm-hmm. Now, space was understood as a container, basically, in mm-hmm. some ways. Uh, space was defined by a boundary in which something fit in. Um, so the, the example often given is like the water in a vase, mm-hmm. the space is created by the vase containing the, mm-hmm. the water. 
Now, space was something else, right? We now kind of consider them together as this medium of uh, motion change, existence, et cetera, yeah. um, almost a more existential view of time, which I, I think uh -huh. it can be very helpful. But for them, when Christ ascends, he is changing in spatial locality. Now, that space then becomes heaven, mm -hmm. right? So now, now it is heaven, right? God's space in the world, metaphorically, is the heavens. So right. Christ ascends to be in God's space, God's place in the creation that's connected very much to this idea of temple presence. Mm -hmm. So you think of Hebrews, Christ ascends yeah. to uh, the heavenly throne not made by hands, you know, that kind yeah. of idea. And so that's what they were mostly concerned about. Now, how they thought of it temporally is a little tricky because um, mm -hmm. I don't think they did. So yeah. they definitely did not see this as future, mm -hmm. but cotemporaneous in some sense. Heaven's time and earth's time are connected. However, if you press them, I bet they would argue, but time is not the same mm -hmm. in both places. Mm -hmm. Just as the locality of the ascended Christ is not our space, mm -hmm. um, it's it's still local according to the reform, but we can't necessarily say how. So yeah. for instance, in a work called the Consensus Tigerinus, which was a compromise document between Bollinger and Calvin on the Lord's Supper, they say that Christ ascends to heaven as if in a place. Mm. And that phrase is intentionally ambiguous of like, is heaven a place properly or is he there spatially? Like, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But we know bodies have some sort of space, so that maintains. I would suspect if we were to speak of them on time, they'd say something similar, mm. that he ascends beyond our time, which is our experience in this world uh, into the time of waiting, the heavenly time, and those things will come together in the end. So yeah. whether or not um, they are experienced the same, there is also a sense that he is our contemporary and contemporary uh -huh. that needs to be so sorted out. That is one of my um, cautions with the concept of the futuricity of Christ, mm -hmm. that um, he doesn't really seem to be our contemporary in any mm -hmm. meaningful sense. Uh, mm -hmm. He is always something on the horizon as opposed to uh, an immediate presence in his embodiment. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think the story of scripture really does play out fairly linearly. That mm -hmm. there is a contemporaneous co act of God, presence of Christ. And you could ask the question, what does it mean to be human with reference to time? Mm -hmm. um, it definitely cannot include eternality, for instance, um, or even transcendence utterly of time because they're finite temporal beings. And if Christ is human, along as being divine, uh, he must have some simpler temporal finitude and temporal markedness, even mm -hmm. if that is uh, we could say glorified in the ascension um, back to that grace nature thing, yeah. but it's not destroyed. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could say he's in graced time after the ascension, but it's still temporal in some mm -hmm. sense. So what yeah. do you think about that? That's just my spitballing. No, I think that's great. Uh, yeah. It's, it, there's, there's just so much, I mean, you know, obviously it, it's a really open and wide question, uh -huh. uh, but it just, I yeah, like I said, I, I well, and p part of it, um, this is like I don't you know I don't know confession or something, uh, which is like I have a very weirdly fragmentary sort of uh, theological education, mm. um, and so nothing, uh, everything just like things just ping off in my brain, um, and I'm like I don't really know where to put that, <laughs> um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and so like 
you know, I was introduced to Jensen and my MDiv, introduced to Pannenberg, introduced to Moltmann, but mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't have a good sense of, well, I mean, uh, classical, we were talking about classical theism earlier. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't have defined that for you. I had a philosophy degree, but we talked about philosophy. Uh, we would call it the 3.0 God, uh, mm -hmm. which is not quite the same thing either yeah. as mm -hmm. uh, classical theology. I thought, I, if you would have asked me, I probably would have thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyway, so uh, so sometimes I just start having these thoughts and I'm like, I don't really know how to put this picture together in a coherent way. Mm -hmm. So you, yours was very helpful. Uh, but uh, yeah. Well, yeah, there is some discussion of this. Torrance actually has a book called Space, Time and Resurrection, where he talks about this to a degree um, that is kind of thinking about time as a relational concept, mm. um, which I found helpful. Um, I'm not always sold on everything that Torrance is doing there, but I, I think it is interesting. And it does show that like the way we think about time now is just not how anyone else mm. thought about time specifically in the past. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's completely disconnected. Uh, there is a book on the Christian invention of time mm -hmm. that argues that the, the, uh, the fathers really kind of bring into this concept of linear time into the West as the main way to think. And that maintains, but time itself as a medium yeah. does seem to be a much more kind of modern way of conceiving it. I, I think it's a helpful and right way to see it. But there's also something about time is about change, and it's about yeah. the experience of things moving. And you could even play with that in the kind of relativity of time that yeah. is subjectively experienced. So, yeah, there's the theology of time, I think, is a uh, yeah, some, some should work on that. I'm sure they have. <laughs> yeah well I, I we were just doing uh i just taught confessions and translation mm. um and the other thing that i had to explain to them as we were doing the 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 question on time uh from the conf uh, from the confessions uh was that time in latin is not permanent um in the sense that it's the 60 minute like what we take to be an hour changes depending mm -hmm. on how, the length of the day, uh, which changes depending on the time of the year. Mm -hmm. And so we have this sort of idea of like the permanence of time. And in fact, Augustine took time to be it, like the definition of impermanence of, mm. of flux and change. Mm. And, yep. uh, and, that, and that that's seems very much more kind of in tune with Aristotle and others. Uh, yeah. you're, you're a very bold man to make uh, students read the sections on time past book 10. <laughs> in the confessions. Um, what, well, what, what do you think Augustine would say about the, the temporality of the ascended Christ? Yeah, I think, I think, I think what you said is right. Um, I mean, in the sense that uh, it's not a medium in the same way it's, it's like, you know, it is um, he, he couldn't, he couldn't have asked the question that I asked about when is Christ in the same way. Uh, I mean, you, you do have the same problem though of, okay, so what Christ takes on in time um, is, you know, Christ is infinite uh, Christ uh, or the, the sun is infinite. Um, and so, you know, and so there's that, uh, you do, I mean, I guess the other thing that I was thinking of that you have to put in here is eternity, uh, uh, versus, um, uh, uh everlasting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and everlastingness. And so like, you know, uh, so Christ is the one that, that because like unites both of those, mm -hmm. um, for us. Uh, but yeah, I think I think the the fundamental problem would be what you just said, which is time. Ta like he he knows that as God, uh, Christ cannot 
change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has to be the um and and he wants that to be the 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 ballast the fixed point the um you know that is uh the the permanent thing understanding the rest is relative to uh that permanence mm-hmm. um and so yeah uh, i think that's that's the index the index that's the word i was looking for mm-hmm. um, yeah and, yeah and and so everything is indexed to uh god's eternity um, I think, yeah, I mean, as far as like, you also have time as history, uh, which you were kind of bringing out the linearity mm-hmm. of time. Um, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, he definitely sees time as unfolding linearly, but he would, I mean, as far as that's concerned, he thinks God is outside of time, yeah. um, outside of that kind of, uh, yeah, s- uh, sort of um, existential experience of time. I mean, as as you well know, philosophically, this creates other questions where Pannenberg can say things like, uh, backward causation in certain things and that gets kind of weird um i mean so that, that's that's the other problem i learned from doing philosophy especially when you do sort of philosophy of religion um is you start to say things like uh well as a human i don't really know how to conceive of being outside of the experience mm-hmm. of time um and if i say that's true about god it ultimately makes any sort of positive statement that i can make uh at the very least cautionary um Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah and i mean i think that's where we uh i i would say that's where we go back to aquinas and the medievals on analogy right you know that kind of issue of religious language um for theology provisionary yeah 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 um although like so that that provisionality for medieval philosophers was in some ways overcome by revelation Right. Mm. So there's a provisionality in our conceptions, but we can um, we can adjudicate between them differently in the theological mode um, because of revelation. I I think that would be accurate to Thomas. I'm no Thomas scholar by any means, but yeah. Well, um, I have immensely enjoyed this conversation. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, I just want to thank KJ Drake for taking an hour well, actually a little longer, um, out of his day, uh, to talk with me. Um, also many years of hard work, um, in producing, uh, the, the flesh of the word, uh, also grateful to Oxford university press, uh, for providing, uh, a copy of the book. Um, and they gave me a hardback, which is hard to get to Oxford to give yeah. those anymore. Uh, but if you push them and wait, uh, they will give it to you. <laughs> so I'm not sure they'll want you to broadcast that, but yeah. yeah. Thanks, Chad. Oh, it was... yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't broadcast that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Okay.